Hey, good morning, everybody. Anyone here ever been to an adoption ceremony? An adoption ceremony. It's very moving, isn't it? I, but yes, yes, yes. I have uh, been blessed to be a part of a few, and I'm in tears every single time. You, 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 you take this person who has no family, or at least mostly bad family, and they, and they are taken out of that darkness and put into a place of complete belonging. Now, it, it, of course, there's still problems. This side of heaven, we never have eternal happily ever after till the Lord returns. However, it is really important to note that in adoption, society is recognizing a fundamental change. A human being is grafted into an entirely new family. Now, taking nothing away from the beauty of human adoption, the Bible describes something even more remarkable. People who trust Jesus are taken from their old darkness and they are grafted into the very family of God. This is, there's more than mere adoption going on in the Christian life, but I want you to open your Bible to 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, there is a baseline about adoption. We're going we're gonna to understand this baseline idea of adoption and then go through the text. So let's read the whole text uh, for today. Verse 13, therefore, when you see a therefore, you ask, what's it therefore? So it is referring to the two big ideas that have just been laid out. You, if you're a believer in Jesus, you have the Scripture and you have the very Holy Spirit of God, okay? You've been gifted with this amazing gift of Scripture and Spirit. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you are also to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, quote here from Leviticus, be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you're to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Verse 20, He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in whom, everybody? In God. God has revealed truth to you. Therefore, you need to be ready. You need to be undaunted. Look at verse 14. You need to live as obedient children. As we state in your notes, uh, there should be a link online for you, or you've got a bulletin. You came in, look, you'll see the Christian has an incredible new family. An incredible new family. We are called to be God's adopted children, strangers on this earth who belong to a heavenly family. Let that idea really sink in, would you? If, if you have trusted Jesus as Savior, then God is your Father. He adopted you by choice. The Greco-Roman world of Peter's first audience looked at adoption slightly uh, differently than we do today. For one thing, adoption was fairly common in the Greco-Roman world. And, uh, and it was practiced, and this sounds really weird to us, but it was practiced when the original family was still alive and quite often well. Um, it, it was noble to them. This, this seemed normal. The old family, by the way, never minded about the adoption because the new opportunity was too good to pass up. Here, here's how it often worked. Let's say you own a, a, a Roman bakery, okay? Get this. And this happened really often. You could select from all of your employees and slaves the one who you thought would do the best job at continuing the business. And you would then adopt, you would then adopt them as your heir. 
And usually while the person was still living, but if not, at least when they died, that person would then take over the family business. In the will, the rest of the biological family was usually well provided for out of the proceeds, but the person that was best able to manage was put in charge. Uh, we even have many, many records of slaves being exalted and adopted as children so they could run the practice. This, this kind of adoption was practiced on an empire-wide scale uh, not too long after Peter wrote this. You see, a series of Roman emperors, we call them the five good emperors, they began to divest the purple of Caesar, not to their biological children, but to people that they chose. So Nerva adopted Trajan, who adopted Hadrian, who adopted Antonius Pius, who adopted Marcus Aurelius, who, well, see the movie Gladiator for speculation on that one. Anyway, um, this, by the way, this was the strongest economic period in all of Rome's history was when this adoption was going on. So God the Father operates similar to these ideas of adoption understood by Peter's readers. God chooses people, even lowly slaves like us. God chooses them. God, the emperor of the universe, chooses to call these people his adopted children. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to desires of your former ignorance. Go to verse 18. But you know that you were redeemed. Redemption implies a, a purchase price from your empty way of life inherited from your fathers. Not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. This idea is so heady. This idea is so awesome that every single apostle speaks of this in the New Testament. I especially love the beautiful summary in, uh, in John's pen, uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Read it with me, everybody together. See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. Sorry, I, read it, I did it from memory. Let's start over again. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. We are. All God's people said? The Christian has this incredible new family. Here's the baseline we have to understand before we even get into Peter's text. And because of our adoption, we are freed from our old familial sin. Look at verse 18. The clause inherited from your ancestors. That's one word in the original writing. Um, patroparatos is a compound uh, that it occurs only here in the Bible. It it's, appears a number of other places in Greek writing. Um, Patroprodotos is pretty easy to understand. You just look at the parts that make up this compound word. Pater is father. That has to do with your heritage. Para is with, just like in modern Spanish, para is with. And didomai means to bestow. So patroprodotos is, is what has been bestowed on you by your ancestry, things handed down from your people, all the practices, all that futile stuff passed down through your earthly heritage. You're free from all that. The, this was huge. In the first century, most people didn't think like this. They believed that a person was trapped in the environment of their upbringing. They couldn't be rescued until they'd spent a long time in a different environment. In fact, Peter uses a really fun idiom to express this idea. He said, way of life in verse 18. That's the Greek term um, anastrophe. Anastrophe means to, to, uh, to talk, to communicate. It's conversation. Now, it's used as an idiom for your behavior. Because we assume that how you talk is going to give a pretty good indication of how you're going to act, right? So if, if all your life, this is how the thinking went, if all your life, if all your life you've done been raised around people who talk like this, then it's pretty much sure that you're going to talk like this your own self, right? Right? That, that's just, that's kind of what they meant by that. 
The first century thinker understood that, and they thought nurture was everything. And they're thinking there was no way to break free of your environment. Peter says that is hogwash. You, you can leave all that patroparatos, all that baggage at the station. You have a new father. You are freed from that old familial sin. Now, here in our 21st century, we face a somewhat opposite cultural setting. We're so enamored with DNA that sometimes people will claim that genetically encoded behavior just can't be overcome. Piffle, says Peter. Peter likes the word piffle. I don't know if you know that. Um, you are freed from that old familial sin, whether it's in your accent or whether it's in your DNA. And just for the record, by the way, the Bible says that both your nature and your nurture play a role in your past. Thank God. Peter says, in Christ we are freed from both. Can I get a hallelujah? hallelujah. When one becomes reborn, adopted into God's family, the, the penalty for sin is removed. By genes and by environment, you and I, every single human, has, has traits that are worthy of condemnation. They are worthy of punishment. But all that punishment was placed on God the Son, on Jesus more on that in a moment. But just note for now, the penalty of sin has been removed. Also, by the way, the Christian is freed from the power of sin. That means we do not have to act the way our forefathers did. We are free. Now, we can choose. We can choose to put ourselves back under the power of sin. We can live like the fools who preceded us in the long line of humanity, but we don't have to. We are free to follow our Heavenly Father instead. And finally, one day we're going to be free from the very presence of sin. Did you know that? Look at verse 13. It says, this is not yet that day, but it is coming. And the apostle reminds us of coming glory. If Christians would only understand and, and live by this, so much pain would be avoided. Every now and then I get a letter from somebody who is convinced that he or she is trapped in, uh, in generational consequences. Uh, now, now, sometimes this is just a thinly veiled attempt to shirk responsibility, you know, that it, it, it's, it's very convenient to take all your sins and say, well, my mother made me do it, right? That, that, that's what they're doing. But other times, other times, these letters, the, the, the person is very well-intentioned. They're sincere. What they've done is they take some verse from the Old Testament about sins of the fathers, and they, they take it out of its broader biblical context, and they really think that they are doomed to keep repeating the same sin over and over. Let me just share one example. Here's a letter I got uh, just a couple weeks ago. Uh, Dr. B, I don't want to do, and they describe this bad thing, I don't want to do this, but I can tell I have no choice. It's how God made me. It's how Adam's sin has warped my DNA, they wrote. My response is always to take that person to 1 Peter chapter 1 and show how we are freed from that old familial sin, patroparatos, period. We are freed from the penalty, and we can choose to live free of its power. Sometimes I engage them uh, with examples because I've been so blessed to get to know so many of you. And I tell them stories of these marvelous people I know who have, who have by God's grace, learned to break sin. Sometimes I talk about my parents, each of whom grew up in, in long-term, oft-repeated cycles of sin. And they were cycle breakers, and they chose to follow Christ. But whatever I write them, I make certain to mention this biblical truth. We are free. We have completely new relationships as adoptees of the Holy Father. Amen? Amen? Now, let's get more into this. This relational change, this change, is founded on Jesus' unspeakably precious purchase price. We're going we're gonna to get to all the details I'm skipping in these verses, I promise. Just for now, look once more at verses 18 and 19. 
A Christian's relationship with God. You see that word redemption? That means it is purchased. That's an economic term. God adopts us free and clear because he paid the price. And that redemption price is not anything to do with our good works or some animal sacrifice or any mere human effort of any kind. What is the only thing that could pay for us to be transformed from slaves into children of God? What's the only thing that could pay that price? The precious blood of Jesus. I had lunch with a pastor last week who very excitedly shared, and I was excited with him, that their church received a $3 million gift out of the blue. $3 million, someone just walked up and handed, allowed them to, to, to get started on this building they have needed for a long time. That's awesome. That is nothing compared to what was paid for you. The United States of America spent about $40 billion with a B. Uh, de developing a vaccine for COVID-19 in, in the hope of saving lives. And that's very noble. $40 billion, that is nothing compared to what was paid for you. Did you catch that prepositional phrase in the text? For you. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know in your, um, in your East Texas accent, you're saying, Now, Pastor, I don't mean to be rude, but it's all just a mite boring. You see, I already know all about Jesus paying for me. I know this stuff already. Do you now? Do you really know? In, uh, in Boswell's uh, study of Dr. Johnson, um, he, he recorded, uh, Dr. J Samuel Johnson was the inventor of the dictionary. Absolutely brilliant polymath. And, uh, and James Boswell followed him around and wrote about his life. In his life of Johnson, he recorded uh, Dr. Johnson saying this, knowledge is of two kinds. We know a subject ourselves, or we know where we can find information upon it. That's true. And Jonathan Satchel of our pulpit team sent me an excellent expansion of this for our age. Um, this, this comes from uh, Nicholas Carr's book, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. Really fascinating book. Look what Carr says. The net grants us instant access to a library of information unprecedented in its size and scope and makes it easy for us to sort through that library to find, if not exactly what we're looking for, at least something sufficient for our immediate purposes. What the net diminishes is Johnson's primary kind of knowledge. The ability to know in depth a subject for ourselves, to construct within our own minds the rich and idiosyncratic set of connections that give rise to a singular intelligence, close quote. So with that distinction in mind, let me ask you again, do you really know the price that was paid for you? Or do you merely know a little about it? Let, let's, let's stop and pray about it. We, we've got more to, to do, but let's, I think we need to stop and respond. Pray with me. Let's pray right now. Father, I want, to pray, I want to pray first of all for anyone who is studying with me today. Anybody who is spending time with me in 1 Peter that has never believed in Jesus. God the Son, you paid the, the only perfect price that could be paid. The blood of Messiah shed so we could be so we could be redeemed. Friend, if you have never believed on that, if you have never trusted Jesus, do so right now. Believe Him. And Lord, I pray for all of us who are Christians that we really know and rejoice in the riches of our adoption price. When, when we feel full of ourselves... 
Lord, let us know that we were hopeless without Jesus. And when we feel lowly, help us know that we are so important to you that you paid the highest possible price. All God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, read on. Verse 20. He, talking about Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times. What's that prepositional phrase, everybody? For you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This relational change, this movement of our lives has occurred because of Jesus' resurrection. Here's the problem. Too often, the resurrection gets left out of our understanding of the holy equation. Uh, We're going to talk about this more at length next Sunday. Let me just emphasize this right now. When I was studying inorganic chemistry, I had a terrible time remembering to include the catalyst in my lab reports. So I would do up a lab report, and it would be right, well, as right as anything can be in inorganic chemistry, which is all hocus-pocus. Anyway, sorry. Um, But I I would turn in my lab, and this happened a number of times. I would get the lab back with a big red check on it, and it would be written on there, Wayne, you forgot the catalyst again. Now, here's why that matters. You, you, you take the, the equation and you get to the exact same conclusion without the catalyst. You get to the right formula. The problem is you miss the energy. There is so much more energy released when a catalyst, when an enzyme is present, because it lowers the, it lowers the need of energy in the equation and produces more. In a similar fashion, lots of Christians leave the resurrection of Jesus out when they're thinking about their new life grafted into God's family. This is a mistake. I mean, you may well end up in the same place, but when you leave the resurrection out of your thinking, you inevitably miss the energy that is available to you every day. That's why Peter says your faith and hope are in God. It's not up to you to have the strength to handle all of today's problems. You can let the pressure off. You can quit working so hard. God has it all in hand. He is the catalyst. The the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Therefore, he will surely safely see you, his adopted children, through all of your battles up to and including death. Jesus' resurrection is what places us in God's family. And his resurrection power is the catalyst that changes our lives. Christian, you are not the same. You are in a changed relationship to God and people because of Jesus' death and resurrection. All God's people said? All right. We have this incredible new family. Our relationships are changed. Therefore, Christians should live holy lives. That's the, that's the headline on the right side of your notes. Look there. And that is the big idea in Peter's text. Now that we established the baseline he's drawing from, let's go through uh, piece by piece. 1 Peter chapter 1, read verse 13 again. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christians should live holy lives because we are in a serious battle. Uh, sober-minded, you see that? That's not about alcohol. It's about focus. It's about being undaunted by the things that don't matter. Holiness is what matters. Listen, l- listen, everybody. In the universe, there are three kinds of matter. Matter, antimatter, and doesn't matter. And we tend to confuse them, okay? Here's a simple way to remember. If the thing before you really matters, then wholeheartedly keep going forward. Focus on that. And Peter says, holiness matters. If you're dealing with antimatter, that is something that is deconstructive, uh, destructive, dissonant with Scripture, fight it. Fight it with all your might, but don't take your attention off of what matters most. And if what you're dealing with doesn't matter, let it go which could be a song from Disney. Let it go and, and, and just go about your business, all right? 
Let me give you an example courtesy of the 2021 Olympic Games. Uh, this guy, uh, the Georgian, Gino Petriashvili. Petriashvili was the top wrestler in the world at 125 kilograms, had been for a number of years. He was taken on by an American named Gabe Stevenson. Gabe Stevenson was an excellent college wrestler. It was his first time to get to the Olympics. And Stevenson made it all the way to the gold medal match against Petriashvili. And here is Stevenson. Now, before I show you their match, I want you to understand this. L listen carefully. Stevenson has scored throughout the match really only one way. He got one point another way, but all of his scoring has happened this way. He has managed to spin around his opponent. Let me describe what happens. He gets Petriashvili to, to react to him. Usually you do this by pushing against and the guy reacts. And then he puts Petriashvili's head down and spins around him to get two points. That's the only thing he's been able to do. This is the best wrestler in the world. The one thing he's been able to do is spin him, okay? What, what does Petriashvili need to do? Stop the spin, right? That's all that matters. I want to show you the last 13 seconds of this match. From a guy who's been in the heat of the battle at these big international moments more than the young American. Oh, he spins him. The American. Two there for Sorry, Stevenson. I told you the wrong colors. American's in blue. Cut. Six seconds left. Petrius Vili. Looking over at the clock. Fake snap, now he's fake up. Snap, fake snap, fake snap, fake snap. Only thing you got to do is stop fake him from snap, spinning. Go get it, go get it, go get Trying it. Trying to come around. Will he get the two? It's part of the board. Gable Stevenson at the final second grabs gold for Team USA. And here it comes. This is pretty cool. Not the bad. The celebration backflip, his trademark at the NCAAs at the U.S. Olympic Trials, and now in the biggest moment of his life at the Olympics in Tokyo. Okay, what did we noted? The American made all his points by doing what? Spinning around, spin move, right? Only thing that mattered, blocking the spin move. Is that what Patrice Vili did, yes or no? No, no, he was absolutely absorbed with something that didn't matter at all, the clock. When you saw him down there and he was kind of catching his breath and he was looking, at the, he wasn't looking at the ref there. He was looking at that time clock. Six seconds left. Six. That's deadly, right? He also was concerned about the antimatter issue of, of uh, Stevenson shooting on his legs, and he blocked that, and that was appropriate, but he didn't go after the one thing that matters. And when he lost sight of that, he lost the battle. How many times does sin take you down? because you're not focusing on what matters. We are in a serious wrestling match every day. And if we do not focus on holiness, we will get defeated. Read verse 14 again. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. Christians should live holy lives because we are beloved children of God. Think back to your teenage days. If you, if you came from a, especially if you came from a healthy home, um, you probably had other kids who really liked hanging around at your house, right? I, I grew up in a home like this. Um, really healthy home, and there were a number of kids uh, who, and they were from, from rough situations, hard situations, that absolutely loved spending every minute they could at my house. They loved my mom and dad. They even loved the rules that I didn't like, right? And I remember one time, i never forget this, Kid and I are playing games, and, uh, and I'm complaining. I think I was complaining about a curfew. And, uh, and he said, man, you shouldn't complain. And I turned on him, and I said, well, you're one to talk. You've got it lucky. Nobody makes you obey. And I will 
I don't think I'll ever get over what he said. He, he just dropped his head, didn't even look at me, he just dropped his head and he said, dude, no one cares if I obey. No one cares at all. God cares. He cares about you. He cares so much that he paid the highest price possible just to have you in his family. So don't be surprised if he cares enough to chastise you, to spank your idiotic little bottom when you're not acting right. He called you to be holy like a proper member of the family. We should be sober. We should be holy, focused, because we're in a battle every day and because God loves us. Look, Proverbs chapter 3, uh, verse 11. Oh, did I go past it? Proverbs, oh, sorry, one more. Proverbs 3.11. Would you read with me? You join me on the underlying text. Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. We should be sober. We should be focused because we are being transformed. Verse 15. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written... Be holy because I am holy. Now, be holy because I am holy is the theme statement of the book of Leviticus. It's repeated a number of times throughout that book. And, and the idea in Leviticus is that God cares about holiness because He has chosen this people to be transformed into His likeness. Leviticus is absolutely concerned with holiness. This is really, really cool. I want you to look up here at the slide. Leviticus, along with Deuteronomy, deals with holiness in, in two ways. It's very interesting. The first way that runs all through Leviticus and Deuteronomy is this idea, no human can achieve holiness. All the laws that Leviticus goes through, they are laid down by God to show one thing, you can't hack it. They are beyond mortal capacity to reach, even by sacrifice. What the law is designed to do is to show you that you are in need. Everyone is in need. But that's only half the story. The other issue in Leviticus and Deuteronomy is holiness shows us that when we realize that need, we respond to Yahweh by what, everybody? By faith. You trust Him, and righteousness is given by faith. So you trust God, and then He declares you holy by God's own sacrifice. And then, then that transformed person is expected to live that out, expected to live in a holy way. Number one. Number two, you see Him in Leviticus. The New Testament takes great pains to unpack this. For example, when, when you go home and read the book of Hebrews... You're going to run into this in Hebrews. You're going to see throughout the book of Hebrews, number one, we cannot be holy except by God's grace. And number two, being transformed, being made people by faith in the people of God, then we are to live according to His holy will. Peter's friend Paul spent almost his entire book of Galatians on this issue. Look, look here, Galatians 3. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a what, everybody? Curse, because it is written, everyone who does not do everything in the book of the law is cursed. That's everybody. Now, it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law. For, and here he gets to the transition of point two, the righteous will live by faith. And then he goes on at the end of that book, for you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as what? Yourself. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially those who belong to the household of faith. Because we are transformed, not in order to be transformed, because we are transformed by grace, we live differently, or at least we should. I was reading an old pastor, a guy named Warren Wearsby, um, as he commented on this part of 1 Peter. And Dr. Wearsby told the story of a guy named Jacob Cram. 
famous pastor in his day. Uh, he was part of the Boston Missionary Society. Late 18th, early 19th century, the Boston Missionary Society began to reach out to the Indian tribes that lived on the northwestern U.S. frontier. At one meeting in 1805, a, a, a group of chiefs had gathered together to hear Mr. Cram share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and after, after Reverend Cram was finished, this old Seneca chief, a guy, guy called Red Jacket, by the way, he was called by the Indians and the whites, they called him Red Jacket because he fought for the British in the Revolutionary War. <laughs> they lost. Um, anyway, he, uh, <clears throat> sorry, he, uh, too soon? Anyway, he had this... Um, he had this red coat they gave him, and he loved it. He wore that the rest of his life, so they called him Red Jacket. By the way, do we have, do we have time for this? This is so cool. Okay, his, his real name, Sagoyuatha, Sagoyuatha, uh, the Iroquois language, Seneca. Um, they, the, this name means, <laughs> this is so cool. I, this is probably my favorite name of all time. This guy was considered such a great orator, and he really was, an amazing speaker, that that name means they cannot fall asleep. How cool is that? It's incredible. Sorry, that was free. Okay, back to anyway. Reverend Cram shares the gospel, and, and uh, they cannot fall asleep, says this. Brother, we are told you've been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. We're acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good, makes them honest, and less disposed to cheat Indians, we will then consider again what you have said. Close quote. Look, friends. Christians are eternally transformed by God's grace, but we can still choose to live like hell. That's why Peter quotes Leviticus to remind us of our calling to be holy. It is what matters because we are related to the judge. Verse 17, look at it again. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers, as aliens on this planet. Peter says, do you see what he's saying here? Hey, you're related to the judge of all. He's your dad. Don't you think that should affect your behavior? I mean, after all, if you're in a family with the almighty judge of everything, you should learn to respect and fear his power because you understand it better than all the rest of the world. My dad's old friend, his dear, dear friend, Dr. John Wren, grew up in central Texas. He grew up in a little town in central Texas where his father was the county judge. By the way, I met Judge Wren before he passed away. Played cards with him a number of times, in fact. Uh, he, was a, he was a noble, uh, pious, godly, strong guy. He, do you know what I mean when I say this? When Judge Wren walked in, a room was filled. Does, does that make sense? He just he filled a room with his personality. And one night when we were playing spades, Judge Wren told me a story that perfectly illustrates Peter's point. He said his son, Johnny, who grew up to become Dr. John Wren, my dad's good friend, Johnny, um, every day, had to walk to and from school uh, past, this, past this field where there was a stud horse. And this horse drove little Johnny nuts because it was the laziest horse in all of creation. Little kid was driven nuts. This horse slept on the ground. That's not really a norm. Just was so lazy. And it bothered Johnny. So one day, one day right after school, Johnny ran home and he got his air rifle and he went back to the field, and he pumped it up a bunch of times, and he shot that horse right in the stud parts. <clears throat> and that horse finally got up off the ground. He came alive, but he came a little too alive. 
he burst down his fence and went through Main Street Rockdale, knocking shoppers over, kicking around, broke a plate glass window at a store with his hooves. It was, it was the greatest day the kids in Rockdale ever had, <laughs> except for John. John went home and saw what was happening, and he went to bed feeling sick. Judge Wren came home that day came upstairs to tell Johnny it was time for supper. And he said, you know, the coolest thing happened today. He told him all about the events. And he said, you know, one thing really intrigued me, son. Every other boy in town was there just laughing and having a great time. But you, you weren't there. I felt sick, said Johnny. Well, come on down to dinner. So John came down to dinner, and he was trying so hard to be cool all through dinner. Just stay cool, just stay cool, just stay cool. And then at one point, Judge Wren looked over and just asked him to pass something, like pass the butter. And he couldn't even get out what he was saying. Johnny, would you, I'm sorry! He just came out, I didn't mean, and he told the whole story. And Dad said, well, yeah, you did mean to. And, um, and, and, and they talked through it. Now, here's what intrigues me. He said, son, we forgive you. Eat your supper. You're part of this family. But the next day, he made John go to his court. And John had to stand up there in Cameron, Texas, and he had to tell all these people what he had done and promise to repay out of his own pocket all the damages that had been caused by the stud horse. Do you get that? When God talks about fearing him in Scripture, this is what he means. John was still and will ever be Judge Wren's son. But the judge loved him enough to make an example of his own child. He made John face the consequences even as he was forgiven. We are related to the judge. He is our father. And since we live with him, we need to live like that. We should live holy lives also because we're redeemed. Verses 18 and 19. I know we've talked about these quite a bit already, but we've got we to note one other item. Peter is purposely, look at verses 18 and 19. He is purposely phrasing in Passover pictures. Say that three times fast. Peter is purposely phrasing in Passover pictures. Peter is purposely phrasing in Passover pictures. Peter's ah, so close. Yeah, try it at home. All right. Redemption came to Israel through the applied blood of a perfect spotless lamb, right? They were set free from slavery because death passed them over. In a marvelous parallel, we Christians are redeemed. We are bought back. We are free because Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb, covered us with his blood. All God's people said? Amen. We live holy lives because we are redeemed. We are related to the judge. We are being transformed. We are God's beloved kids. We are in a serious wrestling match every day, right? And Peter has one more reason. We live holy lives because we are specially placed in the eternal Messiah. Verses 20 and 21 show that the Messiah Jesus was foreknown before the beginning. How's that for a mind-blowing concept? The Hebrew scholars knew this, by the way. Um, in the Midrash, you see this come up. I just grabbed one. Midrash on Proverbs 67. Seven things were already in being before creation, among which is King Messiah, of whom the psalmist said, Thy name is forever. That eternal Messiah appeared on the earth in this age just, look at that phrase again, for you. You are especially chosen to hear the good news of the Messiah. He is revealed for you on whom has come the fullness of times. And, and see verse 21 reads, Through him. Christians are spiritually placed in Jesus. So when he goes through anything, death, resurrection, glory, we go through it as well because we are placed in him and we should conduct ourselves accordingly. When a family moves here to North Texas, 
they very often are placed in a new house, which is great. Even if they buy an existing house, there's often new carpet, right, and, and, and new paint. When you change apartments, same thing. They, they very often put a new carpet and repaint before you, you take your lease. Okay, with that in mind, let me ask you this. What do you think of this idea? The very first day inside that new house, wear the muddiest, filthiest shoes you can and walk all over the carpet. What do you think of that? It's okay, just breathe. It's all right. I don't want to lose anybody. It's okay. It's just an illustration. All right? That's absurd, right? That's not how you live in your house. It's not how you live in Jesus either. Peter's friend Paul, Ephesians chapter 1, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. In Christ. For, for he chose us in him, here's that foundation of the world thing again, before the foundation of the world. Why, why were we chosen? Everybody read it with me. To be holy and blameless in love before him. Amen. Now let's close with the big idea, uh, the big idea that you're asking in your Georgian wrestler voice right now. So what? What should, what should we specifically do? What this thing we should do is a result of all this stuff we study. Thank you, Dimitri, for asking. I have three recommendations for you. Number one, according to our text, mortify sin. Mortify sin. Mortification is a great biblical concept. It means to call sin what it is. To mortify sin is to call sin what it is wherever it is. So instead of blaming my environment or blaming my DNA, I call my sin sin. Here, look at the difference. Let's just take one example. Let's just take our language, okay? The person who does not mortify sin says, well, I, I, I curse, but that's just the way I am. Or that's how I was raised. That's what I hear all the time around me. What do you expect? But I'm angry, right? The person who mortifies sin says, I cursed. Ephesians 4.29 tells me no foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. That person says, my Cursing is sin, and I need to repent of it and rely on the resurrected energy, the catalytic power of the Holy Spirit to help me change. Whatever is wrong, I call wrong. I mortify sin. I don't excuse it based on nurture or nature, whether it's lust or greed or anger or fear. I stop making rationalizations for my sin. Just a few days ago, a professor named Thaddeus Williams addressed this really well. I want to read to you what he said. He said, I offer immodest proposal, sorry, modest suggestion. One of the most redemptive things we can do each day is simply this, call things by their true names. Why? Because words have a tremendous power to illuminate or to obscure truth and therefore the power to make or break civilization. The great authors of dystopian fiction knew this well. In Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, the firemen of America's future were given a new job, namely burning books. Why did they burn books? Because it was to protect our poor fragile minds. They were custodians of our peace of mind. Uh, Winston Smith, the protagonist of Orwell's 1984, spent his days changing words. That was his job. In That Hideous Strength, my favorite dystopian book, C.S. Lewis's book, uh, Mark Studdick is tasked with concocting news to drum up support for this totalitarian regime that has the greatest name ever. It's called NICE. Um, National Institute of Coordinated Experiments. Our destiny through science, right? He goes on then, and I don't have time to read all this, but he goes on then to show how that is, those were just novels. That is exactly what's happening every single day in our lives because of the euphemisms of our time. And he says, why resist these word games? Because Christianity is unabashedly committed to reality. 
And we often find ourselves at a loss what we can do in our busy lives too, as T.S. Eliot put it, T.S. Eliot put it, help renew and rebuild civilization and save the world from suicide. Here's what you do. Refuse to submit to the redefinitions of our day. Help save the world from suicide by making a daily habit of calling things by their true names. Close quote. That is part of mortification. And by the way, it doesn't begin with other people. It doesn't begin with telling other people, well, you're using the wrong word. It begins in my own heart first. I must call my sin what it is. What is it, everybody? Sin. Here's the difference mortification makes. Tragic story I just grabbed uh, from a headline last week. This driver decided not to mortify his thoughts, just decided that for him it was really okay to drive through the water. It led to death. This driver turned around. She saw the water and said, no, no, and she turned and went the other way. That's repentance. Mortify sin. Call things what they are and turn away from sin. By his grace, be holy as your Father is holy. Number two, what should we do? Remember every single day the price paid for you. Every day I need reminding that I am so unworthy that I could never be good enough for God. I'm not the answer. Life is not in my hands. If it were, I would fumble it. And every day I need reminded that I am so precious to God that he gave everything for me. Messiah Jesus, God the Son, died and rose so I could be in his family. If I remember the price paid for me, you know what I enjoy? I enjoy true humility, a, a proper view of self. I cannot emphasize enough how rare this is in the world and how important it is. Truly humble people are not cocky. They're confident. They're unifying. They're not... They're not meek in the sense of being doormats, they are undaunted. Mortify sin. Remember your purchase. And number three, pay attention to what matters. Remember, matter, antimatter doesn't matter, right? If it matters, go after it. If it's antimatter, keep fighting. If it doesn't matter, leave it alone. We, we've got to fight, but we have to fight the fights worth fighting. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray that as a result of our time today, that I will and my, and my friends will remember what matters. Holiness matters. And we'll fight for that by your edification. That we, will, that we will remember every day the price that is paid for us and that we will mortify sin. In Jesus' name, amen.